I think there's there's a secret sauce in product management, and I, I think uh, it's it's something that's a little bit hard to explain and hard to predict. And this is why in product management, we try to work in very, very short cycles with the market and not build for one year and then release something. We want to make sure that our assumptions are true. So we build very, very small things. We sometimes build, build only the demo without actually the technology behind it. We show it to customers and we see how they react. And then we see if it's a good idea or not because it's a one big guessing game. My name is Ofer Shaked. I am the co-founder and CTO of Skatefence. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labpart. And today, how Alfred Shaked took his unique world-class knowledge and applied it to secure critical industrial facilities. All this and more on Code Story. Alfred Shaked started in on computers early. He was passionate about tech from a very early age and started programming when he was 10 years old. He loves tech, loves reading about tech, and is excited about new things in tech, especially around the topic of tooling. He really enjoys music, having played the guitar for a while, but now he focuses on his recently acquired African drum. He connects with music on a deep level and can see the correlation between tech and music, or at least now that we've discussed it. He loves to play sports as well, specifically he loves running. In fact, he ran a marathon a couple of years ago, which in his words was very, very painful. In Israel, where he lives, the timing of the marathon is towards the end of the winter, so training requires running in the rain and bad weather. When he was 24 years old, he had become very familiar with cybersecurity during his time in an elite cyber unit in the Israeli Intelligence Corps. He and his co-founder had a unique understanding, and as such, an advantage, to bring value to the industrial cybersecurity space. This is the creation story of Skate Offense. Skatefence is a, an industrial cybersecurity company. I founded it when I was 24 together with a friend. So we got very familiar with cybersecurity during our uh, time at the army. Uh, we served at the, uh, an elite cyber unit in the IDF intelligence corps for about five years. And uh, when we finished our army service, we understood that we gained knowledge that's unique. Uh, and I'm talking about world-class unique knowledge because not a lot of people had our experience from the army. And we understood that we have a unique advantage and we can use this advantage to create a lot of value in terms of securing industrial networks. Now, when we're talking about industrial networks, we're talking about networks that operate critical facilities such as water utilities, oil and gas, electricity, manufacturing like ele electronics manufacturing, automotive, and a lot of, uh, a lot of other uh, industrial facilities. So these networks are really critical. And this was our mission when we started Skatefence. I wrote the first line of code. I was the CTO, the, the chief technology officer, and my partner, he was the CEO. So he took uh, more of the, the, the business stuff, you know, investors and the pitching the investors and building business models and business plans. And 
I was on the product and R&D side, more, more on the technical side. As soon as we defined what exactly we want to build, I started writing the first line of code. Now, because back then I didn't have access to any industrial facilities, I had to rely on data that I found online in order to start developing the solution. After a couple of weeks, I had something interesting that, that I was able to, to show. And we took this and we started talking to industrial companies in Israel. And we also started uh, talking to uh, all sorts of experts and people from the industrial world worldwide. At this point, we understood that we we're onto something because we got a lot of interest and we had some pretty high profile people talking to us. Now, back then I was 24 years old. I had zero experience in the industry and we had people interested in the product. So we said to ourselves, wow, this, is, th this can be interesting. We can, really, we can really build something that will help someone with this. In the beginning, it was about defining the product and building the initial technology in order to validate, is this even possible, what we wanna do? What will be the expected value? And showing this to investors and customers so first of all, we can get feedback and also we can progress on our company and really start building what we dreamed of. Well, let's jump into the MVP. Tell me about that first product you build and how long it took you to build and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. When you build an MVP, you're not taking all of the list of requirements and you build it. You build something very, very minimal. The goal is to get to market as soon as possible. This is why on purpose, I decided on technologies that were not scalable. I didn't try to go and get the maximum scale. I tried to get it quickly to the hands of customers. This is why I chose Python. On, on such a solution, it's not a good choice because of performance problems and problem scaling. But this is what we did with the first version, knowing that in the future, we're gonna have to make some changes, and, and we did. It took us uh, a couple of months to develop the first version. The goal was to validate that the technology is possible, to, to understand how long will it take to develop it, to, to have an estimation so we can plan our R&D and spending accordingly. And we really wanted to see customers starting to play with it. Now, the first version, it was so complex to use that I had to sit with a customer for a few hours in order for them to understand the output of the system. But it got us the information we needed. We were able to connect it to production networks. They actually let us deploy this in different industrial facilities. It, it got us going and uh, we were able to greatly improve the product. Once we had real world data from industrial facilities, it was a lot better than the data we found online. And then the, the product was able to improve much, much uh, faster than what I could build in my own lab. When you're building an MVP, right, there's, there's certain decisions and trade-offs that you have to make, you know, in the, in the short term. So tell me about some of those and how you coped with them. The, the, the MVP is just one step. You have to make these trade-offs all the time, even when you're developing the actual version. You have to take into account a lot of things that has to do with trade-offs between short-term and long-term. For example, the first version, I used Python. In the real version that's running right now, it's using uh, C, C++, 
and using a framework called DPDK used for high performance package processing. And these are things that we didn't have in the beginning because it would have taken too long to develop it. And we, we really wanted customers to play with it. But all along the way, we had a lot of different trade-offs we had to do. For example, do you use your R&D to build new features and bring new value to market? Or you spend time on bug fixing, increasing the stability and introducing minor improvements that your existing customers requested. This is one, one example of a trade-off you have to do. Another trade-off you have to do, in the beginning, everything is manual because you don't have a lot of automation. You have to invest time in automation and you need to decide how much time you want to invest. If you spend all your time on automation, no one will do any work. But if you do everything manually, you will continue doing things manually forever. So you have to mix. For example, if you want to automate your CICD, automate your testing, provide the developers with a better development environment, all of this, it takes time. And this is another trade-off. And I think one of the most important trade-offs is tech debt. So when you have a software stack, you have parts that are starting to age. It can be your own modules, it can be external modules. For example, after a while, you will probably need to upgrade the operating system. You're gonna have to update the database engines. Sometimes you wanna move between programming language versions like C++ in a new version or Python new version, or there's a new model you wanna move to because it introduces better performance. If you're not doing this maintenance work, your software starts, starts aging and you start having problems from security problems to performance problems, things go out of control. So you also have to manage this. So when people think about building a company and building a product, they really think about building these new features. But it's hard for me to estimate what percentage is this from the actual work. From my experience, I think that the percentage is a lot lower than what people think because there's a lot of work around it just to make things work and to be able to provide your customers with new value. You need to have so much infrastructure in place and maintenance if you want to work right. So you've got the MVP, you've made your trade-offs. Um, how have you progressed the product and how have you matured it? And I think what's most interesting is, is how did you build your roadmap and figure out what was the next most important thing to build? I, I always tell people uh, in, in, our, in our company that building the roadmap, I, I feel like it's, it's a little bit more art than science. If you are a, a true expert in your field, and you really understand the market. And when I'm talking about cybersecurity, you also really have to understand not only the requirements coming from customers, but also the threat actors. What are they trying to do? What exactly are they using? If you are the kind of person that has a very deep understanding, you will be able to come up with the right ideas and to prioritize in a very efficient way. If you don't have such a good understanding, it doesn't matter what technique I will give you, the result will not be what you wanted because customers, they come up with ideas. You have ideas coming from your team. You also read stuff online about new, new things that are possible or new concepts, but putting it in the right order and really understanding what will be a big hit on the product and the market. This is something that it's, it's kind of hard to explain. So of course we gathered input, as I mentioned, from customers, from our own employees, we understood what are the trends in the market and what are the current requirements. We have our existing customers, of course, that we promise them to deliver on all sorts of features. 
we took all of this into account, but I think there's there's a secret sauce in product management. And I, I think uh, it's, it's something that's a little bit hard to explain and hard to predict. And this is why in product management, we try to work in very, very short cycles with the market and not build for one year and then release something. We want to make sure that our assumptions are true. So we build very, very small things. We sometimes build, build only the demo without actually the technology behind it. We show it to customers and we see how they react. And then we see if it's a good idea or not, because it's a one big guessing game. Well, then let's switch from roadmap and product to team. How did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? So we had a, a famous chief uh, general in Israel, and he, he said something that I really agree with. He said, it is better to restrain galloping horses than to spur lazy mules. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's really true. I like people who are really excited about what they do. It feels like they, they, they're living the, the dream. They see what they do as more than work. They take it personally. They really want to win. This is the kind of people I'm, I'm looking for. So when I talk to them about technology or about what they do, if I don't see the, this spark in their eyes, I don't think they'll be a good match for, a, for an early stage technology team because I'm really looking for people looking to do an outstanding job. Frankly, these are also the people that I enjoy working with the most and I vibe with them the most. And I think it's really important to have this sync in your team where people are on the same mindset and they share similar values. I think it creates really, really good communication, both verbal and non-verbal communication. You just understand each other better. So this is what I was looking for. Of course, I was also looking for people who fit our criteria. So they're familiar with the technologies we want to use, excited about the product, excited about the company. So we were also looking for stuff like that, but I think that's, that's kind of the obvious. Let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently in the beginning or were you fighting this as you grew? I have been thinking about this question for a while and I want to tell you that we built it to scale from the beginning, but that won't be true. I, I think that building a product to scale from the beginning is not such a good idea. Scaling, it's, it's very hard to, to plan the vectors on which you will want to scale. So. If you build something to scale and you don't really need the scale, you're just overcomplicating the architecture. The development will take you a lot longer and you will not get any value out of it. And later you have to maintain this technology. You have to maintain this code base. It's a lot more complex. It takes a lot of time to train new people on the code base as a, as a result. I, I think you, you have to get into this balance. Of course, not planning at all and just building something for the next sprint is inefficient. If you know that in a couple of sprints or let's say within the next few months, you're going to need to scale, it's better to put the scale in the, in the product uh, to, to begin with. But if you're not sure if, if you're going to need it, I think it's a good idea to, to skip it and pay the, the cost of refactoring in the future. Because when you use this strategy, maybe you will do a couple of refactoring and the team will be upset that you didn't think about it beforehand, but you're not gonna have a lot of places where you build stuff 
for scale when it was not needed, just overcomplicating your product and architecture. So th this is my take on this. I'm not saying that we did the perfect delivery, perfect execution of the strategy. We, we had quite a few mistakes in our engineering process, but I think this is what we aimed to do. So some things we planned them from, for scale, some of them we didn't plan for scale, some of them we built not to scale and we knew that we were taking a risk. And uh, as I mentioned, we also had mistakes. We had, uh, we had things that we built and a few months later we understood it. we made a huge mistake and this should be scalable and we started working around the clock to be able to deliver the solution in time. Yeah, so we had all of these. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think that I am most proud of the team that we built. I think that we have a team that's able to deliver on time on very, very complex tasks. It's also a team that is super fun to work with. Our, our customers are really happy. We're, we really make sure that we do, uh, we do the best job for our customers. I think this is the key to winning in business and generally if you if you if you are playing something that is not a, a solo a sport if it's a team sport you have to care about your people first I think this is the this is the thing I like the most everything else that I will say for example the product the technology the processes that we have our customers whatever all of this is a symptom of the culture that we built and the people that we have in the company so I really really appreciate the culture and the people. I, I think that it's a good focus to spend the time and the energy to get it right. I've seen amazing, amazing companies with, with a lot of potential that failed because of the wrong culture and uh, hiring the wrong people. It starts with uh, people that are not willing to help each other or making decisions based on uh, personal interest rather than what will be beneficial for the entire company. People who are not so good in communication, so it's hard to work with them, it's hard to understand what they're doing. So I, I really think it's a good investment to make sure that you get your organization built in a way that can be productive and that people will enjoy coming to work and will enjoy working together and will be able to work through conflicts and uh, make mistakes together and take risks together. I think this is the thing I like most about our company. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So I, I started the company when, when I was very young. As I mentioned, I was 24 years old. I didn't have any experience in business or generally in the industry. I had a lot of experience in technology, but running a company is very, very different from being in uh, research and development. So I made quite a few mistakes. Even if you're very experienced, you, you can still make mistakes. We all know about very big enterprises that made mistakes in business, but still, I, I think uh, it's worth to talk about a couple of things. First of all, I was wrong in hiring a number of times. Being wrong in hiring is really, is really painful. For the survival of the company and the organization, you're gonna have to let these people go. Not all of them were young, fresh out of the army and can get a job uh, quickly. Some of them had families. So it was quite painful to fire people, people that you like, that you hired, that you believed in them and you see they're not, they're not a good fit for you, what you were looking for and you're thinking what will be best for the company. 
And in a small company, it's not like in the huge companies where you can just move them around to different roles. Sometimes I didn't, I didn't have any role to move them to. Another mistake that I remember doing is in technology selection. Uh, as I mentioned, I was the CTO. If we had technologies that were critical in the product, I was there to approve. One technology was in a field that I wasn't exactly familiar with. I delegated the task to one of our team members who was an expert on this topic, but I didn't realize that his experience is not exactly in line with what we were building. So he made the wrong mistake in the technology selection. And we figured out only about a year or two later that it was a mistake. It was a critical part in the infrastructure and this mistake delayed us. Uh, we decided to uh, refactor and get this part uh, out of there and replace it with a new component. It took us uh, three man months of uh, refactoring to get it done right. So these are some of the mistakes. Of course, there were other mistakes that were smaller, but I, I, I'm not aiming to do zero mistakes. I think that if you're not doing any mistakes and you're doing everything perfectly, you might be moving too slowly. I believe that it might be more efficient to have a strategy in which you can make some mistakes. Of course, not a huge mistake that will cause you, I don't know, huge financial or legal trouble or something like that. But I think it's better to build a culture and build a company where some mistakes are possible. Absolutely agree with that. You learn so much from the actual mistakes and it strengthens who you are as a company and the product you're building too. Though, albeit they are painful, but um, it does help you in the long run. Well, what does the future look like for your product and for your team? Skatefence actually now has a number of products. We started with the product that I mentioned. In 2019, we launched a new product. It's a compliance product. In 2020, we launched another product that's uh, used to uh, prevent uh, cybersecurity incidents in the type of devices, in the IoT devices that we protect. So we now have three products. We are doing a lot of work to move to the cloud. We are working with industries that are a little bit more traditional. Critical infrastructure, manufacturing, all of these, these, these things are not the first to adopt cloud technologies. They have a lot of stuff on premises. We really believe in the future of the cloud in this field. We already see the customers moving to the cloud. And this is something that we're pushing. We have a cloud platform and we're, we're doing a lot of work to enable customers to onboard quickly to the cloud. We also have a lot of ideas for additional value that, that can be provided. We also uh, signed some uh, agreement with a company called Rapid7. It's a large uh, security company based uh, in, in the US. And uh, we are working closely together on, uh, on some, some new things in vulnerability management and visibility. So I think that the critical infrastructure manufacturing sectors are growing rapidly in terms of cybersecurity. There are quite a lot of attacks. And I think that customers have a better and better understanding on what they should do. And I think that the companies in this sector enjoy the growth as a result of this growing awareness. So I, I think that in the next few years for, for Skatefence, we are going to see massive growth. We already announced last week that we just raised another uh, round of funding of $12 million. So this will help us grow. 
And uh, together with our new partnerships and the recent senior hires, we really believe we can deliver new and exciting uh, features to, to the market and really help the, these customers this year. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person that you look up to and why. I, I think uh, I learned a lot from my older brother. Um, he was also an entrepreneur. He started a company in anti-fraud and uh, sold it to PayPal. He taught me a lot of things from an early age about technology. And he was also a CTO at his company. So he really helped me when I was struggling with the first things in, in skate offense. And generally, just I learned a lot from him. So I think it really influenced the way I think right now and the way I approach those things. Yeah, I think this is um, one person that really has an effect on me. Well, we talked about mistakes, but if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think that as a technical person, I did a very common mistake that technical uh, people do. And I now see this mistake as I advise other entrepreneurs. For example, people from my unit who are technical, they, they come to me and they ask me questions about how to start a company. And I see that we all go through this pattern. So we are starting a business, but we're coming from technology. So the way we think is technology, product, and then marketing and sales. In business, you have to work the other way around. Even though you're a technical person, you always have to start with what can you market and sell? This is the most important thing. Um, focus on the distribution. How are you going to get it to customers and what exactly do they need in order to buy the product? And only then start designing the product and finally get the technology right to deliver the value that the customers are looking for. Don't start from the technology and build the product and then try to market and sell it because it, it won't work. This is one thing that I think I would do differently. Another thing that I would do, I didn't understand how important it is to be obsessively close to the market. Even when you don't think you should, even when you think you know enough about the market, you don't know enough. There are small shifts happening every few weeks in the market. You have to really connect with the market. You have to talk to customers all the time. Every time I get on a sales call, I understand something new. I try to talk to customers as much as, much as possible. I think this should be the, the focus of the entrepreneurs and leave the engineering to get really, really good engineers that can overcome challenges and guide them, but let them do the engineering and you need to learn to read the market. Listen to customers very, very, very closely. You have to really be obsessed about it because otherwise you're going to lose touch with the market. Last question, Ofer. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who has built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? First of all, I would be super excited for him or her. I, I love people that are following their dreams and building what they think that should be built. I have to, to warn, to, to give a warning before I give out any, any advice. My way and what I did in my company and the way I think and my values are not right for everyone. So I would 
take my advice with a grain of salt, even though I'm, I, I, I did some things and I, I'm experienced in this, it's very different and every story is different. So I, I think I have three things that I would recommend this, this person. First of all is to work hard, but take it easy. Shit happens, right? It's a, it's a roller coaster. Bad things will happen almost every week and good things will happen every week. You, you, you have to worry about it. I, I'm not saying don't be worried. I'm just saying it's a balance between everything is going to be all right and between worrying. You have to be somewhere in the middle. So that's my, my first advice. My, my second advice is that when you, when you hire people, you, you need to plan to work together for, for many years. So the, the people around you at work, they're going to be the people that you're, you'll spend your life with, literally. You're going to spend more time with them than with your wife or with your husband. So I think you need to select people that you love working with. You need to identify them and you need to invest in these relationships, whatever it takes, and you need to build trust with them. And my, my third recommendation is to not be afraid, just not be afraid to go after what you believe in. You don't have to copy from someone else. You don't need to look what works for someone else and then just do the same. Just uh, uh, trust your way to take you to where you should go. And I really believe that you'll get there. If you're, you're thinking in a smart way and you're not delusional and you take reality into account and you, you, know, you get advice from people, I think you can follow your path. So stop the thoughts for a second and just feel what, what feels right to do and try to think, why do you feel that? Don't worry, you, you're not going to be a starving musician on the street if you go with your way. A lot of people are built for this, built for business, built for technology. There are a lot of people who love this. Anyway, this is what I believe in. But as I mentioned, it's not, it's not for everyone. This is how I work and what, what, what I believe in the advice I give. I think that's great advice. Well, Affair, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for being on Code Story and telling the creation story of Skate Offense. Noah, thank you very, very much. It was a pleasure being here today, and I can't wait to hear this podcast. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.